Well, buenos dias, Iglesia de Webster. Buenos dias, good Spanish, love it. Yeah, so good morning to each one of you. Um, as always, it's an honor and um, a joy to be here uh, with you today. Um, yeah, um, and it is also a pleasure to be here um, with uh, my wife, Nancy, and our firstborn, TJ. They're not here right now. She might be somewhere, but, um, but they're here. <laughs> so, but uh, yeah, yeah, TJ is being a wonderful blessing for us. Thomas Jose, alias TJ. <laughs> so um, he is the new member of the Brito Ford family, and uh, we're just very thankful uh, for his life. Is um, As many of you know, um, he is a true miracle and a true answer to many prayers from many saints, including the saints of Webster Baptist Church. We've been praying for a long time, and the Lord conceived the miracle, you know, for us to have a baby. And uh, Nancy and I are and will be deeply and grateful um, for each one of you forever, um, for your prayers, for your love, for your care, um, and for your support toward our family. Um, we love you. I know that you know that, but um, I wanted to remind you that and know that you have a special um, place in our hearts. And I'm sure that eventually TJ is going to develop that um, love for you as well. And um, yeah, our family is here. And I want to say also that you are the true family. You have been a true family to us. And uh, Nancy and I appreciate that very much. Um, that said, I would like to invite you to uh, go with me to your Bibles. If you have a Bible or a device uh, with the Bible app, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians. Uh, chapter 2. We are going to focus our attention on the first 10 verses of uh, this letter, in this chapter. Ephesians chapter 2. Um, this, I believe, is one of the most um, impactful passages in all scriptures. But before we get started, please um, let me pray for the Lord's guidance um, during this time. Dear Lord, um, I just want to thank you for this opportunity that I have to present your word for the edification of our souls. And um, it is my prayer that you can speak to our hearts today and that uh, your word may be clear to us. Please teach us generously, correct us where we need it, confront us when necessary, and encourage the weary souls. I pray those things in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Um, before I get, you know, started um, sharing this passage, um, I want to mention that one time I heard a really good illustration from someone that helped me understand this passage in deeper ways. Imagine that you are in a tour around big houses, huge mansions that belong to famous people and celebrities, such as uh, Bill Gates, um, even Elon Musk, Patrick Mahomes, or Tom Ford. And you get to enter into the biggest house of that area. Now, your level of amazement gets to its highest by observing all the luxury um, around this house. The best cars that you've ever seen, a huge um, and beautiful garden, 
So every aspect of the home has been beautifully and artistically well designed. You are now intrigued and want to know who owns this incredible home. Then you realize that a very, very poor man lives in this house. You are even more intrigued in what you are hearing. And the very first question that comes to mind is, how in the world did this poor man get to own this immense house? Then you learn that this poor man met the previous owner uh, of this great house, the wealthiest person in the area, a man whom he hated and even robbed multiple times. But despite the poor man, this poor man's actions against this owner, um, the owner of the house gave him not only his beautiful house, but his entire inheritance at no cost and under no condition whatsoever. Why did this rich man decide to give all his fortune to this poor man, despite all the damage and all the evil that he caused to these rich men? No reason. Just because. Just because he wanted to. This is exactly the same scenario portrayed in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Here we see a God who is wealthy. But more importantly, he is very rich. Rich in mercy, rich in love, rich in kindness, rich in grace, rich in life. Here we see this God who, despite our evil attitude and actions against him, he has granted to us that he, um, he has granted to us everything, absolutely everything that he owns, so that we can enjoy all things with him, Christ Jesus. In regard to this passage, a preacher called uh, John Stott once said, for what Paul does in this passage is paint a vivid contrast um, between what man is by nature and what man can become by grace. So, um, in this um, beautiful passage, Paul reminded the community of believers in Ephesus of their past condition of death in contrast with their new spiritual condition of life in Christ, resulting in good works. We will see this passage in three parts. Um, what was the efficient, sad spiritual condition before meeting Christ? Verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 7, then we're going to see the marvelous spiritual condition after meeting Christ. And lastly, verses um, 8 through 10, uh, we are going to observe Christ's salvific grace in the life of the Ephesians resulted in good works. Basically, what life looks like pre and post Christ, and how a life post Christ should always walk in good works. Um, first of all, um, let's see the dark condition around the Ephesians' lives before encountering their Savior. In that uh, we can see it in the first three verses of this chapter 2. Um, in fact, in this part, Paul reminded the Ephesians of that sad spiritual condition. 
he basically said, you are dead and walking on Satan's path in according to their fleshly desires and passions. In verse 1, Paul refers to his readers as dead people. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Paul uses the word dead metaphorically in order to provide a spiritual diagnosis of the Ephesians' past spiritual condition. The verb were, in verse 1, basically indicates a permanent state, a state that is irreversible. In other words, there is nothing that can reverse this permanent state of deadness. There is no one that can do that unless uh, you encounter the one that demonstrated greater power than death and sin, and we know that. And these are the good news that eventually we're going to see. But um, um, in verse 1 also, um, the apostle says that the Ephesians were dead due to their trespasses and sins. The word trespasses refers to a lapse or deviation uh, from the truth and uprightness, from, what's, from what is right. Uh, the word sin indicates the idea of missing the mark or missing the right point where things are supposed to be, where things are supposed to go. So the words trespass and sin may refer to people's double transgression, both by commission and by omission. Um, and what I mean by uh, commission is uh, that um, the Ephesians, um, they actively were walking um, in sin and walking uh, in evil and actively engaging with evil. And what I mean by omission, by omission is that they rejected what's right, what's good, and they didn't want to do what's right and what is good. Those living under this condition refuse to do what's right. They also are actively doing what is evil. So moral and spiritual diagnosis for them is death. Interestingly, despite being dead, the text says that they can walk, which denotes some sort of action. Unfortunately, this is a walking in the dark type of action. Verse 1 um, says that the Ephesians once walked. This community of believers used to be also in that train, and they used to walk in that way, meaning that they conducted their lives in a similar way that other people were doing it without knowing Christ. However, in this type of walk, there is no life in and of itself. In fact, this is a deadly walk, and it is the opposite of life. What then was the manner in which Paul's readers walked according to this passage? Verses 2 and 3 describe three enemies that led the Ephesians to walk the wrong way. The world, Satan, and their own human nature, their flesh. The first two are external enemies, the world and Satan. The last one is more like an internal enemy, and that is our nature, our human um, flesh. 
Let's think about the external enemies for just a few minutes. Paul declares that before knowing God, the Ephesians were following the course of this world. In other words, the system of the world controlled the life of the Ephesians before encountering Christ in their lives. The course of this world is a reference to this age of evil, totally different uh, from the age to come, in which death and suffering will be absent. In the meantime, however, these deadly people were following the trend of the world. This word, cosmos, or world, as MacArthur says, does not represent simply the physical creation, but the well-ordered, the world system of values and the way of doing things. Unfortunately, we too are part of this fallen world, around fallen people with a fallen system, us being fallen as well. Those living without Christ in this world do not have God as their reference for conducting themselves in a worthy manner. The system of the world is contrary to God's leadership, authority, and perfect plan and design for humanity. Be careful. Be careful with your walking in this world. Do not let the world be the final arbiter of your walking in this life. Do not let it determine how your values, your affections, and moral conduct should be defined. Instead, let the Holy Spirit of God guide you to all truth, as the, um, um, the Apostle John tells us in um, his Gospel in chapter 16. Do not learn from the system of the world. Learn from Christ's divine word. That, that is truth. The world then... Um, it's, the, per, it's the, um, the first external enemy that we see here described by Paul in this passage. Now, the second enemy is also very dangerous, and that enemy is Satan. And um, this second enemy um, is described as the prince of the power of the air. And that enemy, Satan, is against God, as Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 4 uh, informs us. Satan symbolizes darkness, terror, and destruction. There is nothing good in him uh, whatsoever, only evil and death. As a powerful enemy, Satan has control over those living under his dominion. And those who do not have Christ in their hearts are also following the course of this world and obeying the orders of the commander in charge of this world and their lives. And that, unfortunately, is Satan. The Bible says that uh, those who live without Christ and without hope in this world are under the power of the evil one. In fact, um, uh, verse 2 of Ephesians describes those walking apart from the light of Christ as sons of disobedience. They are living against God and against his will. 
Those following Satan in this age of evil are in rebellion against God, against their creator. No wonder they receive the title sons of disobedience. So the ruler of this world leads those who are spiritually dead into a foggy atmosphere in which there is darkness, evil, and death. Interestingly, the Greek word energuntos, in reference to the action of being at work, describes um, the active, ongoing action of Satan, who is persistently seeking to lead more and more people into this dark atmosphere of sin and death. And he knows how to do that, because he does it very well and very subtly, unfortunately. And, um, and this is what um, the apostle is reminding the Ephesians, how they were also living under those conditions. And um, there is a native group of people then called, just like that, sons of disobedience. And um, I want to say that this is a sad reality even for, for this time, even for us today. Those who do not live under the authority of Christ are living under the authority of Satan. It is that simple. If Christ is now your Lord, the prince then of this world is the one controlling your life. But guess what? There is a way. There is always a way to get out of it. And we will say more about that in a few minutes. But I need to first share the bad news, which is what we see in the passage, and then we will come up with the good news. But for now, um, bear with me as I continue delivering more bad news until we get to the point of giving good news. So in verse um, 3, at the beginning of, of verse 3, Paul reminded his audience um, by basically declaring to, their, uh, to them, remember um, that also was your awful reality. You got to remember where you came from. That also were you. The apostle reminds his readers that they also used to be part of the group of people that still are controlled by Satan. Note how in verse 3, Paul is no longer using third-person plural. He now uses a first-person plural. Now he's including himself into the conversation and into the example when he says, um, among we all lived. By the way, the words um, live and walk come from the same Greek word. And it is interesting, as you play with those two words, um, it's interesting to think that the way that we walk, that we behave, reflects the way that we live. It is very, very interesting. So the apostle here recognizes that the Ephesian believers including himself, um, lived or walked obeying their internal enemy, their sinful nature. Notice that Paul is not saying, among we all are living. 
like if that is the case anymore. But instead, he uses the past tense of this verb, lift. We used to be that, but not anymore. Lift, indicating that the action stopped and they live in this way no longer. And I pray and hope that that can be the story of each one of, of us um, in this place. Also in verse 3, the words flesh, body, and mind refer to humanity as a whole. When Paul uses the phrase passions of the flesh in this verse, the word passions denotes excessive inordinate desires subjugated to the will of the flesh. Additionally, um, the word um, desires indicates that the human's will's tendency is to please the body. Interestingly, while the will and Satan, the two external enemies, strike in order to control people's lives, people also desire to please and gratify their own nature. It is an ongoing mental and spiritual battle um, that can let the person that is barrenly without the proper spiritual resources fail in the attempt. Finally, the mind as the last component of human nature identified in verse 3 is related to the person's understanding and intellect and a way of thinking. Unfortunately, the Bible says that the prince of the air has darkened their understanding. Paul further explains this idea in this same letter in chapter 4, verse 18, uh, when he declares, they, in reference to those living without Christ, are darkened in their understanding alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. In other words, those who live or walk following the world, Satan, uh, the sinful nature, and without God are dead. Paul sustains that the result of this lifestyle is being by nature children of wrath. This designation is the result um, of people's rebellion of actively living in sin in conformity with Satan. Most of the time, the word wrath is in reference to the wrath of God. Children of, God, of wrath, by nature, implies original sin, total depravity, or corruption of nature itself. Romans chapter 1 verse 18 also says that God's wrath is against those who commit unrighteousness. This is a tragic result for those living in rebellion against God. In the last part of verse 3, uh, the phrase the rest of humankind is in reference um, to those who still remain in their dead, deadly condition of trespasses and sins. Not this community of deficiency anymore, but those who at that time were living a life of darkness and walking in darkness. Um, I want to say this morning that, that like Paul and the Ephesians, 
we must remember our past spiritual condition of death and refuse to be led by the ways of this world, Satan, and our fleshly desires. We must remember how awful this condition was and reject to go back. The sad reality for those among us who do not have King Jesus as Lord and Savior um, is that you are dead. Despite physically walking and breathing, you are dead. That is your spiritual diagnosis and your spiritual reality. It is as real as the air that you are breathing right now. And um, it is my prayer that that can be broken. And there is always a way, just like, like I said. There is always a way. But I would like to give you another illustration for you to reflect on and to, to think about as we continue uh, in this passage. In the first movie of the trilogy called Matrix, Neo is taken by another guy called Morpheus to visualize the reality of the world that once was governed by humans, but now controlled by machines. Before the encounter with the reality of the world, Neo was living a different reality where he got up every day, went to work, spent time with friends, and went back home. The machines took all of, uh, all of humans um, that exist in the world and put them into boxes which are connected to humans' brains to project a fake reality into their minds. Neo was shocked by the true reality that he had to face from that time on. At the same time, he was free from the false reality he lived in. In a sense, something similar is happening in this passage of Ephesians, starting in verse 4. In this case, God is the one enlightening the Ephesians' lives for them to see the reality of a fallen world in contrast with the fake reality of stability and harmony projected by the external and internal enemies of humanity mentioned in verses 2 and 3. Now, um, as I promised, um, I'm going to give you the good news that is going on here. Starting in verse 4. Starting by Paul declaring, But God, being rich in mercy, know that the character and the person of God is introduced for the first time in this passage. He used to be the prince of the power of the air, you know, controlling everything in the first three verses. It used to be darkness, you know, in the first three verses. Now, God and his character enters into action in this uh, verse 4. And um, something interesting about um, God entering into action is that every time that God pops up in the equation and in the life of someone, he immediately makes a significant impact. A huge difference takes place when the light and the life of Christ shines in the life of someone. There is no God referred in the first three verses that we just saw. Only the prince of the power of the air, 
whom the Bible also calls the father of lies, the thief, the destructor. Satan then covers the dark atmosphere described in the first part of this passage. But, B-U-T, three letters, one word, this is probably one of the greatest conjunctions, I must say, in the entire Bible. God is bringing a new and refreshing atmosphere, starting with this um, word, but. Something opposite is going on. It's going to come. And it's positive. It's good. And regarding, um, regarding this, what we see is God bringing a new and refreshing um, environment and atmosphere full of grace, full of mercy, full of love, and full of life. Regarding this contrast, Pastor Tony Merida once said, God's gracious initiative and sovereign action stand in wonderful contrast to verses 1, 2, 3. We were lifeless, hopeless, and under condemnation. But God came to our rescue. With Christ, we are spiritually alive. One of the most interesting things in verse 4 is that God is rich, richer than a billionaire or anyone that you can think of imagining right now. But more importantly, God is rich in love and mercy. And his mercy and love are sufficient for everyone. I'm, I'm sure that each one of us here present at least know one person that... Um, is not walking with the Lord, at least one, and um, that is walking, you know, in um, the condition that we see in the first three verses of the Bible. And it is my prayer that um, today we can pray, you know, for that person, and that we can hope that that person someday can come to the knowledge of the truth. And I know that that breaks our hearts, and. Um, I just pray that the mercy of God can reach them as one day reached you. So um, another um, word that I would like to give you um, to think about is uh, the word great in reference to God's great love in verse 4. And um, it is interesting how this um, phrase, God's great love, uh, describes basically God's remarkable demonstration of love toward humanity, even without um, humanity deserving it. This is wonderful news, though, because this means that God's great mercy and love have been extended to those who are guilty and miserable, but now walking with abundant grace and living hope. Verse 5 states, um, that um, even when we were dead in our trespasses, something happened. Namely, despite offending God, in spite of despising him, he made us alive, together with Christ. Christ was the one shining life upon the Ephesians believers. Christ was the one shining life upon us. 
He is the one and the only one who can shine life upon you, dear friend, if you do not know him yet. This is the gospel that we believe and are now declaring to you this morning. Christ grants life to dead people. He enlightens them and makes them shine with the gospel of grace and hope and restoration. This act of God's amazing grace greatly amazed even the Apostle Paul. Because it is not merely the offer of life, but it is also the giving of life. That's for real. That's for sure. And because we have received the life of Christ, then let us rejoice um, in that truth. Let us rejoice in what we can say is our present reality. Dear brother, dear sister, if today you came to this place without thinking or without any reason whatsoever um, to rejoice, here's one. Here's one for you to rejoice today and hopefully throughout the week um, as you meditate on this passage. This is um, one great reason to rejoice in the Lord. Your present reality of life and redemption, the life of Christ Jesus in you, is your new reality. Paul offers an explanation in verse 5 to make clear that this miracle of life is a gift from God. By grace, you have been saved. It is a free gift, yes, and yet you must accept it. In verse 6, Paul continues the idea of being alive with Christ and describes other great benefits that we have in this new life. Verse 6 says that God raised us up with him and seated us up with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Interestingly, in verse 5 and 6, Paul uses the phrases made us, raised us, and seated us in past tense to highlight the three successive historical events occurring in the life of a believer once the amazing saving grace of God has reached them. In a similar way, these three acts in a believer's life resemble Christ's victorious resurrection, he made us alive, ascension, he raised us, and eternal reign, he set us. Isn't that amazing? God made us alive by giving us Christ's life and Christ's riches. He also granted us his inheritance. The heavenly places are God's home, greater than any home we can possibly imagine. Christ's dwelling place is a far better mansion that, than that portrayed in the American dream. The heavenly places, brothers and sisters, is our ultimate home. So, live your life in light of this eternal reality. Just like Martin Luther, the reformer, very well said, 
I live this, this day in light of that day. My focus is to live this day looking forward to that amazing day. That was his thinking. That was his um, conviction and his reality. And um, it is critical for us to regularly reflect upon this beautiful reality as well. We also must live, we must walk this day in light of that magnificent, marvelous, majestic, remarkable, amazing, glorious day. It is worth it. It is worth it. Meanwhile, verse 7 says that the purpose of saving grace is for God to show the immeasurable, can't be measured nor calculated, to show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God's love, grace, and kindness um, are remarkably depicting the majestic of God's care for and commitment to human beings expressed in these actions in Jesus. God is rich in mercy, love, and kindness. And he wants to offer these riches to you if you don't have them yet today. No matter how much you have offended him or how much you have hated and rejected the Son of God, the door of grace is still open for those who wish to enter. They are wide open. And that, dear friend, that is a fact. Dear brothers and sisters, that is the big contrast between a life pre-Christ and a life post-Christ. Now, the last thing that um, we will see this morning is Paul's emphasis about how the work of salvation through Christ produces good works in the believer's life. In fact, Paul presents the ground or the foundation of everything discussed up to this point here uh, in this last part. In verse 8, Paul affirms, for by grace you have been saved through faith. The grace of God is a kind demonstration of God's mercy and love that he offers to sinners. There is no need to present any merits, any gifts, any bribes, any pay, any wages, anything, absolutely nothing before God and before his throne. We have received this amazing gift of God by means of Christ's work on our behalf. The grace of God um, manifested in salvation should motivate believers to live their lives with a deeper sense of gratitude. Even the grammatical choice by Paul proves this fact. When we read the phrase, by grace you have been saved, the verb here is in what um, people would call a passive tense, indicating that salvation was granted to us and not earned by us. God's grace was given to us but it was not purchased by us. Salvation by grace is through faith alone. It's through believing 
in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is not your own doing, the apostle says. It is a gift of God. This idea is that salvation did not come from us, but from God. Therefore, we cannot earn it. And that's good, because I don't know how we can afford such a pressure and, um, and such a big treasure, which is salvation. I have no idea how we can do that. And that's why I'm so grateful that it is a gift. And I don't have to pay for it. Even if I wanted to, I couldn't. I cannot afford it. We cannot afford it. But thanks be to God for such a beautiful gift. Verse 9 says that salvation is not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Even though the word gift may have connotation of gifts offered as an expression of honor, that I can see how also that could be um, understood, in the case of the Christian life, the meaning is totally the opposite. Therefore, good works flow from what God does in us, rather than God's work in us flowing from our merits or any intentions or any action that we could do. This salvation is a, a free gift of God, not of us. Now, that said, though um, not saved through good works, we have been saved for good works. Verse 10 says that we are his workmanship, created in Jesus Christ for good works. Workmanship is in reference to the, um, the Greek word poema, just like our English word for poem. Um, and it is used to describe artistic pieces of work. This word is also used to describe the works of God as creator, as we read in Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. In our passage today, this word is used to refer to God's most beautiful and most, impact, and most important creation um, that he has made, and that is us, is you and I. We are a poema of God. On the one hand, we were created by God, and on the other hand, we were resurrected, which makes God both the God of creation and also the God of resurrection. And um, he made us alive again in Christ Jesus for good works. This then means two things. Number one, we are a wonderful design of God's marvelous work. And second, God's action must result in lives that produce good works. And guess what? God prepared beforehand these good works with the purpose of us walking in them. Now, this walk is completely different from the walk that we previously saw in verse 2 the walk of death. This one is a walk of life, walking according to God's good purposes that he beforehand thought, designed, and prepared for us to walk in. Praise be to God. And I prefer to call this walk in verse 10 a holy walk. 
And it is important to emphasize that salvation did not enter our lives in order for us to have passive lives. The gospel of Christ has changed our lives not only into eternity, but also on earth. And that should cause an impact even on our regular basis, on our rhythms and the way that we relate to people, relate to families, relate to friends, and even relate now, even, you know, have our own lives, you know, manage our own lives. Therefore, we must produce fruits of the Spirit worthy of this salvation. But remember, you are not alone in this. You have the Holy Spirit, you have the Lord that is going to help you, is going to um, assist you. He is going to gather back whenever we need it. And that is the God of salvation. We were made for this time. We were made for this time. God wants us to do good works that he prepared especially for us to walk in. Whatever that means, whatever it is that the Lord has called you to do, just you know, walk in obedience and enjoy your Christian life. The Lord is with you and for you, and he's going to be with you, as he promised. We have been saved by grace, by God's grace. This wonderful news should move us to produce good works. Praise the Lord for his kind mercy and love toward us. Isn't that amazing? Just, just put into, this into perspective. Before we were called sons of disobedience. Now we are called sons and daughters of God. Before we were called enemies of God. Now we are called friends of God and brothers of Christ. Before poor, now rich. Before dead, now made alive. Before condemned by God's wrath, now brought near by grace. Before wandering in life without purpose in life, now made new creatures who have received the task of wandering, of walking in good works. What a wonderful Lord and Savior we have in Jesus Christ. Praise be to God who changed our eternal reality through his mercy and love and kindness toward us. I want to conclude by giving three words of application to, um, to those um, that are here present, um, especially for those who have believed in our Savior, Jesus Christ first. Do not follow the path of this world, but focus instead of living a holy life that, play, that pleases God and honors the work of redemption completed by Jesus Christ on the cross. Second, let's praise God for granting us his abundant life and for his mercy. And third, let's walk in the good works that King Jesus meant for us to walk in. Let's honor him with everything that we are, everything that we have, and everything that we do. And for those who have not yet received Christ, I have three, three things also to tell you, for you to reflect and to meditate. First, stop following the, etern the internal and external most dangerous enemies in your life, the ruler of this world and your desires. This path leads to death. And, um, and there is a better way, there is a better path. Second, do not miss the chance of receiving God's most precious gift in your life. 
he gave his only son as a sacrifice so that you can also have life. You do not need to be a slave of sin anymore. Come to Christ today and be free. As long as the door of grace is open, you can still make it, and you can still make things right with God. Have in mind that this door will not be open forever. But now it's open, and it's the time for you to come in. And lastly, let Jesus lead you into his glorious purposes in your life. He wants to make you the person that you were meant to be. Someone who walks in the good works that God kindly and thoughtfully designed for you to live, walk, and enjoy. Join me in prayer. Dear Lord, um, I just want to thank you in this time. Thank you so, so much for your grace. Thank you for giving us life even when we were dead. Thank you for your mercy, for your love, for your kindness, for your life. Please, Lord, um, just help us, Lord. Help us honor you by producing the good works that we are meant to walk in, even this week. Help us proclaim this truth to others who need to be made alive through the gospel, just like we have. And for those who have not experienced your amazing grace in their lives, please, please, Lord, continue speaking into their hearts so that they will be able to experience the taste of your redemption. Show them your glory. Bless them with the gift of spiritual and eternal life. It is our desire and prayer. And it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen.